Good morning. Welcome once again. And as David said, today we are continuing our series, Kingdoms in Conflict, and we're approaching the end of our series, indeed, just uh, two or three more weeks. And so I would reiterate what David just said, that some of these topics are likely to prompt questions, maybe things that are hard to hear, maybe things that just we don't have time to unpack in full detail on a Sunday morning, and you think, I would really like to understand more about that or know what it means for me in my situation. Maybe I'd like to get together with a pastor and talk through that or pray over it, um, and we invite you to do that. You can submit those questions um, if you have them. If you have questions that you, you, know, you think are things that we, we ought to be addressing or maybe things that we've left unsaid, perhaps because of time or whatever other reason on a Sunday morning, please go ahead and send those in. We will be taking time in uh, two Sundays' time to answer some of those, to have like a panel kind of arrangement up here um, and answer some of the things that we had not um, originally covered in this series or maybe just extend some of the things that we have already been talking about. But, but also, don't wait for that. If you have questions about anything that you hear one of any of the teaching team uh, sharing up here, feel free to engage with us. If you have questions from today, feel free to come and engage with me, ask me, um, or you can email pastors at oakridgecc.org if you would like to you know, put uh, unofficial, less official questions to us or get together with us. Please, please take advantage of that if you would like to. And today, in particular, we come to the topic of surrender. Surrender. It's not really a very common word in our language. Not a word we use particularly often. It's not even a very common word in our English translations of the Bible. In fact, I have a little chart here to show you how many times the word surrender occurs in some popular translations of the New Testament. This is, so clarity, this is specific to the New Testament. There are some references in the Old Testament, mostly in the context of stories of conflict. This is it. So, you might ask yourself some questions, or ask me some questions. What is it? Why are we talking about it? And what does it have to do with kingdoms in conflict? I'm glad you asked. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. First of all, let's talk about what it is, right? A little, let's do the linguistic part first. So the English word surrender is actually derived from Old French, and the two words sur and rendre, and those mean, sur means over, and rendre means to give or to give back specifically. Um, we get, obviously, the English word render from that as well. So, as in, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. This is the meaning of the word surrender, to give something or someone over to something or someone else. And there's a distinction between that and just thinking of surrender as to give up. Those are two different things, subtly different things, and they maybe connect at different points. We often think of the word surrender in a military context when we hear it just in any kind of normal everyday parlance. And so we might think of it in a military context as giving up. And maybe it is in some cases, but the meaning of the word is that we are giving something or someone over to something or someone else. And there is a comparable word 
in the Greek of the New Testament. And that word in the Greek is paradidomai. And the word paradidomai is actually used 120 times in the New Testament. 120. And you, as you can see here, it means exactly the same thing. Para, meaning over. Didomai, meaning to give. It's curious that we have this word, this English word surrender, and we don't use it in our common English translations of the Bible. And what's interesting about that is that actually this word is translated in a, in a pretty wide variety of terms, and we're going to see some of those this morning. And what's important about how it's translated or what defines how it's translated is the context in which it's used. So I'm going to be a little unfair to you right now. I'm going to take a straw poll without any context, and I'm going to ask you, raise your hand if you think, in general, in principle, without any further context, that surrender is a good thing. Some. So, increasing numbers, okay. I should have done this with eyes closed so that you weren't looking to see who else responded. Okay, now raise your hand if you think, in principle, in general, without any further context, that surrender is a bad thing. Excellent. Good. Well, what I hope to show you this morning is that you're all right, and that some of you also may be wrong. Um, so the thing is, surrender is not good by definition. Let's consider Matthew, the words of Matthew 24, verse 10. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking about the signs of the end of the age. And he says to his disciples, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. This is not a warm and cheery verse, is it? Jesus is not making a warming statement here. Where's the surrender in this? Anyone want to take a... I, heard, I think I heard someone mutter it over here already. Betray. The word betray, betray one another, that's your paradidomai in this verse. To give people over to something. Many will fall away, they will give one another over and hate one another. They won't, they won't have love for one another and want the best for one another. They will just say, yep, I'm giving you over to whomever and whatever, I don't care. So surrender is not good by definition, but it's also not bad by definition. Let's just roll forwards a chapter or so here. Matthew 25 Jesus is still speaking to his disciples, and he's telling parables about the kingdom of heaven. These verses will be familiar, I'm sure. He says, for it will be like a man going on a journey. He's describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. A man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability, and then he went away. Where's the surrender in here? It's entrusting his property to the servants. Jesus is telling us, he's explaining about what the kingdom of heaven is like, and the kingdom of heaven is good. And he's saying it's like this, and here's a part of it, that God entrusts his property with the things that are his. So surrender, not good by definition, not bad by definition. But the really important thing in all of this is to whom are we surrendering, or to what? We consider um, Paul's words to the Colossians, chapter 1 of Colossians. He says this, verse 18, he says, 
He's talking, um, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Let's just stop there for a second. He is the head of the body, the church. In other words, it is to him that we are to give ourselves over, that we are to surrender ourselves. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is just one example that I've picked. There are many throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament in particular, um, that tell us, plain and simple, that we are to give ourselves over to God. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Romans 12, 9 says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. It's quite clear through the passage of Scripture that we are to submit or surrender to what is good, ultimately to God, and not to what is bad or evil. And there's an interesting kind of interplay between these two concepts of surrendering and submitting. I'm not going to go all super language lesson this morning, but you've got paradidomai, which is to give over, and you've got hupotasso, which is what we translate as submit, which means to put or place under, like under someone's authority or responsibility or care. And there's a clear parallel between these two words. There's an overlap of meaning, where if you are giving somebody over to someone else, you are putting them under their care or responsibility. They're not exactly the same word, but there's a very, there's a very clear uh, tie in between them. So we are to submit to God, to what is good, not to what is evil. As James said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We could also look at the beginning of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that is the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We just sang those words this morning in that song, Sweetly Broken, that we were under God's wrath, and now we are forgiven and redeemed because of what Jesus has done for us, because we have surrendered our lives to him. It's, 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 a, it's a very plausible definition of what it means to be a Christian believer, that you have surrendered your life to Christ and acknowledged him as Lord. So these things, these are, Paul gives us in these few verses three things that we are to avoid, that we are to resist, that we are not to surrender ourselves to. The course of the world, so the world is the first one. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. This is an intriguing definition of the devil. So the world, the devil, and then the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So the world, the devil, and the flesh. This is to whom we are not to surrender ourselves. What I want you to get, hopefully, from this morning is that there is no such thing as neutral territory here, which is kind of ironic given we're talking about surrender, which we often think of in a military context. But if we are not surrendering ourselves to God and to His will, 
if we are clinging to our own thoughts and desires or passions, our own pride, then we are effectively surrendering ourselves to the world, the devil, and the flesh. There isn't a middle ground. And Jesus even says it the other way around when his disciples talk about, oh, we saw somebody casting out spirits in your name. But he wasn't one of us, so he told him to stop. And I can only imagine what Jesus, you know, I don't know if Jesus ever eye-rolled. But I could imagine that, you know, if he did, that would have been the moment, maybe. Like, no, no, if he's not against us, he's for us. Let him continue. There is no neutral ground. On Monday this week, Marie and I did something that we don't often do anymore. We, we sat and watched a movie. I'm going to read you a little quote from the end of this movie and see if you can guess which movie it was. It probably won't be that hard, at least certainly not for some of you. It says this, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Those words sound familiar to anyone? I did my half best at a Winston Churchill impression. Those are words delivered by Winston Churchill to the British Parliament in June 1940. We were indeed watching Darkest Hour. It's an intriguing movie. I recommend it if you haven't seen it. And he says, we shall never surrender. They're facing the Nazi war machine. Nations in Central and Northern Europe have been falling to the Nazis, Belgium, France, the Netherlands. And there's actually this real pressure inside the British government whether or not to strike terms or attempt to strike terms with Hitler. And he says, we shall never surrender. Why is that? Because they were facing a tyrannical evil. And he wanted to defend, as he said, we shall defend our island. Now, what he's effectively doing is he's still surrendering, in a manner of speaking. I realize I'm stretching the word here, but follow me for a second here. What he's saying is we will not give ourselves over to the rule of this evil tyranny. We will not do that. But we will give ourselves over to the risk that we are going to fight them and we may lose. He's still giving himself over to something, but it's the right thing. Again, there is no neutral territory. He couldn't say, we're not going to surrender to the Germans, we're just going to pretend they're not there. Right? Sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud like that, but there is no middle ground. Or to bring it much more up to date and closer to home. Yesterday, we remembered the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Now, I don't want to get into, I don't mean to express any kind of uh, political or military strategic thought in any of this. But in the face of the 9-11 attacks, one of the worst things that we could have done is just to give ourselves over to that kind of evil and say, oh, well, that's okay, we'll just let them do that. Now, like I said, I don't, want, I don't mean to get into any of the strategy of how do we respond to that. But as a matter of principle, to give ourselves over to that kind of um, evil intent and aggression would be wholly wrong. And just, and just let, it, let it be. That would be wrong. 
There is no middle ground. We're either surrendering to what is good or surrendering to what is not. But what is it that we are to surrender? Well, the first thing is the obvious thing, I guess. It is ourselves. Let's look at a couple of verses here and Jesus instructing on this and modeling things for us. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew's before Mark, in case anyone's wondering. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. The disciples want to know how to pray, and Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. There's our first and simple principle, that we are to desire the will of God the Father to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That starts in our lives, and it extends hopefully to our families, our church, our circle of friends, our colleagues, our nation, our world. But it starts in our lives. We are to submit ourselves to God's will, to want God's will to be done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. And Jesus has some challenging words for us. He says, he says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We are to take up our crosses, metaphorically, if not literally, and be willing to lose our lives, again, whether that is physically lose our lives, but most definitely lose this, the self-guided direction of our lives, right? to be willing to offer our lives up to Jesus. And whoever would do that will save their life in the end. Whoever refuses, whoever refuses to acknowledge Jesus as Lord in the end, will lose their life. That's what he's warning us about. And then if we fast forward again to Luke chapter 22, we see Jesus giving us a very powerful example of this himself. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before he is going to be um, crucified. And he's in, the, he's in the garden with his disciples, and it says, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is about to face an excruciating period of time not just physically, but spiritually. He's about to face um, beating and flogging and crucifixion. That's the physical pain that he was about to go through for our sakes. He was also about to experience the wrath of God poured out on him in a way that we can't possibly imagine or explain because of the weight of sin that we have created in the world. 
the extent to which we have gone away from God and his good plans and his good designs. Jesus is about to face this, and he knows it. He knows exactly what is coming. And yet he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's our example. And it's a tough one. So we are to surrender ourselves to God. And I'm not going to go into this morning, well, what does that look like in sort of the detail? This is something maybe um, that would be great to talk about in life groups. It would be great if you want to come and talk to any one of us pastors about it. If you don't know what that looks like, if you want help defining what does, that, what does it mean for me to surrender my life, then please engage with us to help figure that out. Because it is all-inclusive. It's hard to kind of take it. That's the whole point. We're not just taking a piece of it. We're not just saying, well, I've got my sort of my career path that I'm set on and that I really want to achieve and uh, the home that I want to buy in five years' time and the car I'd like to drive and all the rest of it. But I'm willing to give this. I'm really willing to su surrender this portion of my life to God and let him use me in that portion of my life. That is not what God is asking for. So if you if you want to help work through, what does that mean for me? What, is it, what does it mean for the path, the trajectory of my life to surrender to God? Then please engage with those in your small groups. Engage with one of us. Let's talk and pray through that for you and help us all to step forwards in it. There's something else that we're supposed to surrender, and this is going to sound a little odd to start with. Others. Others. In a sense, we go back to Romans 12 for a second. Romans 12 and verse 19 says this. I can find my Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We are not to take vengeance. If we have been offended... We are to surrender that to God, and we are effectively to surrender that person to God and say, it is not mine to take out vengeance on this person. Lord, that is up to you. I want to expand on this thought a little bit by reading to us Psalm 73. Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a leader of the Levites, a leader of Levitical choirs that David had established um, he's mentioned several times through Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Um, and Psalm 73 is attributed to him, and it reads thus. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. See, Asaph is struggling with something that perhaps many of us struggle with as well. We see injustice in the world around us. We see those who seem to have an easier, more comfortable life than we do. We see those who oppress others. And is it good to come to the aid of those who are oppressed? Yes, absolutely. But is it ours to seek vengeance on them? Asaph says it so well. He says that he was embittered until he came to the sanctuary of God and he realized the bigger picture. That this may last for a while, but ultimately, God's preeminence will be revealed. If people choose to ignore it now, ultimately that is on them. If we choose not to surrender to God, we're effectively seeking our own pride and importance. And the irony is not lost on me that the pride movement has taken that very title for themselves. That a group of people who um, profess a, a, a set of beliefs, opinions, um, that depart from what God tells us, what God has designed for us. And uh, we've talked a lot about that through this year. We've just taught an entire series on God's good design, so I'm not going to try and unpack that all again here in 60 seconds or less. But a group of people who have gone away from God's good design should take the term pride and revel in it. The irony, unfortunately, is rich. And it is our job as believers to reach out to them with the truth. It is our job to share the gospel with them so that they have heard the truth. But it is not our job to, um, certainly not our job to, uh, to uh, make them believe anything. It is not our job to be um, judgmental of them to attempt to enact you know, the word vengeance is the one that I've just read on them because they're, they are 
they have departed from what God has said. That's not our job. That's God's job. Ultimately, any of us who in any way, shape, or form, I use that as an example because it's such a clear and obvious one in our current culture, but any of us who live in rebellion against God, we will all face Him one day. So it is our job as believers to surrender ourselves to God that we, that our lives might reflect what I was reading from Colossians, that Jesus is the head, that in all things He might be preeminent. It is our job to enact that in our own lives. It is our job to encourage that in the lives of those around us. And the results of that ultimately are up to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are great and powerful and loving, that you are just, that you are merciful, that you are gracious, that you are in so many ways good and perfect, in all ways, and in so many ways that are beyond us. And we thank you for the model that you have laid out for us. We thank you for your instruction to us. We thank you that we don't have to carry this ourselves, that it's not our job to define what is good and right, to define perfection, but it's our job to surrender to what you tell us is good. And we thank you that you are faithful, that we can trust in you. We pray that you would help us to surrender our lives to you fully and completely. We pray that you would nudge us, poke us, smack us up the side of the head if we need it to see any areas of our lives that we are white-knuckling and trying to hold back from you whether that's in our, just our personal walk, if it's in our work lives, our home lives, our school lives, our church life. In all of these venues and more, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see clearly where we are not surrendered to you and that you would challenge us to fix that, to lay our lives before you and say, Lord, you lead us, please. Would you please lead us and show us the way? And we pray that you would help us to be increasingly confident and able in showing that to others as well. We pray that it would not stop with us, but that you would show us how to encourage those around us to surrender their lives to you also, that we might get to experience the joy of eternity with as many of them as possible. We thank you for what you have done by sending Jesus to the cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were able and willing to make that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as you were about to face incredible torment, that you were able to pray, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. We thank you that you have made a way for us to come back to God. And we thank you for the example that you have set us. We pray that you would bolden, embolden and strengthen us to be surrendered to your will, to give our lives over to you. It is for your glory that we pray, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. Yeah, in Hebrews it says that uh, for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross. And that joy is, is the ability for us to have a right relationship with God again.
Um, and so we're going to sing about that joy that we have when we uh, surrender to the Lord. And so uh, here we go. <laughs> 